And this is like one of those moments that you always hope you'll run into in your life where somebody places a big bet against you and you, you get to go work your ass off and, and figure out who was right. Hey, if you've been thinking about training with me and my team in Carlsbad, California at one of our SealFit Academies, let me encourage you to do it this October. This is our last academy for 2017. It occurs October 12th to 14th in Carlsbad, California. Now, the reason this is important is that this is the last time we're offering the academy in this format. The academy is a three-day immersion experience that combines the core principles of both SealFit and Unbeatable Mind, and it's led personally by me and my team of coaches from HQ. This course blends both classroom time with rigorous physical and mental training to forge mental toughness, emotional resiliency, and to introduce the five-mountain training model. There's no question that you will become a more indomitable and courageous leader in all areas of your life as a result of this event. Now, as I mentioned, this is the last time we're offering it in this format because as of next year, I won't be able to personally attend the SealFit Academies. So as a special offer to you as a podcast listener, if you sign up for the Academy by September 8th, I'm going to include a pair of 511 boots as a bonus, completely free. That's $140 value. (laughs) These are unbelievable boots. You're going to love them. And like I said before, this is a special offer only for you who is listening to this podcast and only good until September 8th. Sign up for the Academy now. Take advantage of this offer by going to sealfit.com slash events and use the promo code BOOTS, B-O-O-T-S, at checkout. Hope to see you there. Hoo-yah, Divine out. Hey, folks, this is Mark Divine with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. Welcome back. Thanks so much for your time today. I do not take it lightly. I know you have lots of things vying for your attention, so I really appreciate it. The podcast now is available on Stitcher and Google Play, as well as SoundCloud and from our website. So we're out of just being an iTunes podcast. We're starting to expand our universe. We also have the beginning of a video podcast on our YouTube channel. You can find that at our website, unbeatablemind.com slash podcast. If you haven't rated it on iTunes, that helped us crack into, uh, my guest just informed me, <laughs> top 100 podcasts. So how cool is that? But it's because um, folks like you have gone out and rated it. So if you haven't rated it, go to iTunes or Google Play and, and click the button all the way to the right. Hoo-yah. Thanks so much. So my guest today is Tom Bailu. Tom, um, I've, I've known Tom for a couple of years. Tom is an amazing, amazing guy, super high energy, super intelligent, and wants to make a big, big difference in the world. He's the co-founder of Quest Nutrition, which is one of the fastest growing nutrition companies in the United States, currently ranked number two in the Inc. 500. This number blows me away, but in the first three years, they grew by 57,000%. I, I got to talk to Tom about that one. That's still mind boggling. Um, And one of his passions now is to really connect with and project into the world the really cool things that other entrepreneurs are doing as social impactors through his new uh, show called Impact Theory. So we're going to talk about all of this and how we can together with Tom's help and helping Tom influence our global culture for the better. So it's really in alignment with our passion and uh, mission at Unbeatable Mind. So, Tom, thanks so much for your time today. I hear you just got off of a 24-hour crucible experience of a Facebook Live. So, how was that? Dude, it was amazing. And thank you so much for having me on, man. 
Uh, you and I, as you said, go way back. And I don't know if you know this, but you're the one that convinced me to meditate, which has really been nice. uh, a huge influence on my life. So I talk about you on the show uh, very frequently whenever <laughs> oh, meditation cool. comes up. So yeah, well, meditation is a game changer. Uh, and then let's talk. Let's talk about that at some point. You know, as we dive down one rabbit hole after another. But let's talk about first the, the Facebook Live. What was that? I mean, that sounds intense. You, so you were answering questions with a live feed for 24 hours and, and running different content? Were you there yeah. for the whole 24 hours? I, I was, yeah. So cool. we just crossed uh, 100,000 likes on Facebook and wanted to do something really cool to show the community, not just with words, but with actions, how much we appreciate everything they've done to help us grow. And so wanted to do something that was not only um, unexpected and, and over the top, but had a little element of suffering to it uh, mm -hmm. to let those guys know, you know, that we were really prepared to do something pretty cool for them. And, and so, yeah, we were, I was literally on camera for 24 hours <laughs> and um, answering questions. We did a whole, we had like nine different guests come on the show at different times and um, filmed game shows and just all kinds of stuff. It was, it really ended up being so much fun and, and a little too fun for me to take any credit for suffering, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, it, it just worked out and was, was really cool. Now, is that just a run and done or did, does it get recorded and is there future content that you leverage out of that? Or Yeah, we record it and we'll release it as 24 separate one-hour blocks. So it'll live on Facebook as three eight-hour blocks, right. but then we'll ultimately release it on YouTube as one-hour blocks. Oh, cool. Well, that's one way to knock it out of the park in one 24-hour period. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see because we tried a bunch of different content styles. It'd be interesting to see which ones really hit. And the nice thing is we've got that running tally of real-time feedback as it was happening from the people that were joining us live. So yeah. uh, it was pretty neat. Very cool. Well, because most of the folks in the Unbeatable Mind audience uh, probably don't know you personally. I know we talked a, a year and a half ago or so. But the podcast was really small back then, and so I think that episode is is a little bit buried. Let's talk about um, or start kind of with the you know man behind you. Like, where did you grow up? What were your early influences? And you know, how did you kind of like get to the point where you were, you know, your current incarnation started a flower? Let's say, you know, the quest version of yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a journey and a half right there. Let me I'm tell you. Sure. So I grew up in Tacoma, Washington, and my parents taught me to be a good employee, keep mm -hmm. my head down, do as little work as possible, and avoid punishment at all costs. And um, that's really how I came up. And going into sounds college... sounds like the American dream, by the way. Right? <laughs> so it uh, didn't quite give me the results that I was looking for. And when I went to college, things necessarily changed for me. So I knew I was going to be taking on college debt. I was going to be studying the thing that I really cared about, that I had a deep passion for. And so it just didn't make sense to me anymore to be coasting. And I cheated a lot in high school. And it just, like, none of that added up for me as I went to college. And I wanted to take it seriously. And I told myself, ARF, sink or swim, I'm going to do this without cheating at all. And I'm really going to focus on um, crushing it in school. And so that was the beginning of me really beginning to shape my mind. That would take a very long time. And I wish that it had been, you know, binary. And I, hey, I walk into, you know, the first day of my freshman year, and, and I've just got it all figured out. Right. Sadly, uh, that wasn't quite how it worked. And I end up graduating from college, having had a, 
um, an emotionally traumatic experience in film school, which mm. uh, was my major. And I had done well at the beginning of film school and my final thesis project, which only four people get to do in a year. And I was one of the ones chosen for that. And I just thought, man, this is it. Like I'm going to be set. And then I embarrassed myself and just crash and burn with that film. Oh, and man. it was really brutal emotionally to have, you know, to be thinking everything is set up, I'm going in the right direction. And then to just feel like you, you fumble it all right at the finish line. Mm-hmm. And that sent me really searching for, cause up until that point I, I had a fixed mindset. So I believed that I was born a talented filmmaker and there was really nothing that I could do to improve that. But as long as I really rode that wave well of being talented, then, you know, it should be able to take me wherever I wanted to go and then run smack bang into the fact that I'm actually not talented. And <laughs> what do you do with that? Right. And so now my whole worldview, my vision of myself is crumbling. And mm-hmm. that actually ended up being a great thing because it sent me on a quest to escape depression, essentially, by mm-hmm. figuring out, like, is there another way to view myself? And mm-hmm. unfortunately, Carol Dweck had not yet written her seminal book, right. Mindset, so I didn't have that as a guidepost. But those were the things that I began to figure out that actually it didn't really matter what I was born with. What really mattered was how hard was I willing to work? What skills was I willing to acquire? And going down that path and um, spending some time as a teacher and really seeing how not only could I improve, but I could help other people improve and just saw this really visceral expression of what a growth mindset looks like, how you can really utterly transform your skill set. And so that laid the seeds for then I meet the guys who would end up becoming my business partners at Quest. What, what, what age group or year you know, was it when you were a teacher? So, uh, I was teaching at, from like 22 to call it 25. Okay. So the, the brain is not fully developed. It's not uncommon to have a fairly fixed mindset at that, those young, that young age. In fact, you know, you and I have chatted that that's the time period where I woke up to my little story and my fixedness um, through meditation, through Zen. And then, you know, that's what led me into the seal. So right around that same age group, that's interesting. So I think there's a lot of transformation happening in that, that time period. Yeah. No question. No question. Okay. So then you met your future uh, partners. Yeah. So they, um, fortunately met me in the environment where I was giving a lecture talking about the techniques from a marketing perspective, how you could leverage media to influence anything, buying behavior, whatever the case may be. And they said, hey, look, we're starting this technology company. Why don't you come help us? You seem like a sharp guy and, you know, be a copywriter. And so I joined them as a copywriter and they said, look, don't think of yourself as a copywriter. This is a startup. You can really have any job that you want in the company. You just have to become the right person for that job. And they really reinforced the growth mindset and were very like hardcore. This is your shot. Make the most of it. And so being around other people that were just that diehard going hard was really interesting and intoxicating. Unfortunately, at the time, I was really just chasing money. And their pitch to me was, you're coming to the world with your handout. If you really want to control your art, you want to make movies, then you have to get rich, of course. And I had promised myself when I was a kid that there would be two things that I would make come true somehow in my life. Number one, I was going to get rich. And number two, I was going to have six-pack abs. And (laughs) 
growing up in a morbidly obese family as the slightly chubby kid, that was like a pretty distant dream. And these guys were ripped bodybuilders and successful entrepreneurs. So, you know, really working with them to learn about lifting, to learn about nutrition, to go through that physical transformation as well was really, really powerful. But at about six years in, thinking the whole time, of course, we're going to sell the company in like 18 months and I'm going to be rich, I'm going to be rich. And uh, just when 18 months turned into six, six and a half years, I realized, all right, I just can't do this anymore. And so I went in and I quit. And I said, by that point, I had earned equity in the company. I was a 10% owner. I had worked my way to chief marketing officer. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, guys, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I'm living the cliche of money can't buy happiness. I want to go do something that makes me feel alive. And, and you know, just to keep from belaboring the point, I'm, I'm you know, going quickly. But this was like emotional devastation. I was mm-hmm. back in that same sort of depths of despair that I was at in film school when I just felt utterly lost and I had no idea what I was going to do. And I had that same feeling. So here I'm making more money than I've ever made. I'm mm-hmm. a part owner in a multi-million dollar company. I should be ecstatic. Like this is literally everything I've been working for. Yeah. And, it's everyone's dream, right? right? Entrepreneur. Yeah. And so here I was like just wanting to tear my hair out. So my wife and I had decided, you know what, forget that. We're going to go do something that makes us feel alive in the moment. And I just had like the slew of realizations about the kind of thing I'd want to be involved in, adding value to people's lives, like finally admitting that money isn't my highest priority, that I care much more about the camaraderie and the brotherhood. And so when I went in and quit, they were taken aback and they said, look, we could do this without you, but we don't want to. So that let me reconnect to something other than the money. It let me reconnect to them as friends, to the brotherhood. And I said, look, I'm willing to come back, but only if we're willing to change the way that we do business. And I want to do something that's predicated on value creation. I want to do something where we're going to enjoy the process because I'm like, look, the, the struggle is guaranteed. The success is not. So mm-hmm. if, if we know that the struggle is going to happen, And we can't promise that we're going to have this big payout and we're going to be able to sell the company. Like, it doesn't make sense to constantly be deferring my pleasure, my happiness, my joy, my fulfillment for some later date when I have money. And so it was really amazing because this wasn't like I gave some amazing Jerry Maguire speech and and convinced them. (laughs) They were like, we actually feel the same way. And so finally we were talking about it and being honest with each other about what, what was really meaningful to us. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we said, okay, we'll give ourselves six months. If we can hit certain revenue metrics, then, you know, we'll keep going to an exit. But if we miss those revenue metrics, then we'll, we'll sell the company and we'll start something from scratch that's predicated Mm -hmm. on value and all those other things. And so we tried for six months, we didn't hit the metrics. We end up selling the company and that new thing that we found that's all about value. That's about the camaraderie. That's about, you know, really wanting to build community and help people and have a mission ended up being quest nutrition. Hmm. So you all agreed on that mission and on what was that process like when you were, you know, when you sold the business and decide what, you know, what was next? So it's of course, like anything, it's a little um, less clean cut and Hollywood ready than that. I've been through stuff like that. And I know that there's a a few bumps that could occur in there. And I, I have like a million entrepreneur questions that just popped in my head. That's really interesting. Yeah. So it was, I mean, you know, this drill so well, it was okay. 
rather than just sell the company and then figure it out, like let's figure this out now while we still have the security of the company and it's doing right. well. So we started building it long before we started building Quest long before we sold the technology company. We were testing the market. We were making sure that the product was viable. You know, we were renting kitchen space by the hour and and really just seeing like, is this actually something people want before we make some huge investment before we sell the company and then don't have you know, something to, to keep us going. And the, even, you know, then, while it was very, very difficult manufacturing the bars when we were making them by hand was brutal. It only got worse for a while when we bought equipment. But even at, at that phase, we were selling and we thought, you know what, there really is something here. And so we started the sale process of the company at the same time that we began building Quest. And um, finally, when we sold and we had a new CEO come on and they locked us up in employment contracts, but um, the new CEO who was the one that bought the company and I didn't see eye to eye on what marketing was. And this is like one of those moments that you always hope you'll run into in your life where somebody places a big bet against you and mm -hmm. you, you get to go work your ass off and, and figure out who was right. My whole thing was that social media changed everything, that marketing was storytelling, it wasn't spreadsheets, that it was about connecting and building community. And he was just like, you're crazy kid. So he's like, if you want to go do it, I'll let you out of your employment contract, you know, go do it. And so I went and did it and um, spent the first year building the company while my two partners were still back at the tech company and really got a chance to, to see, you know, if this new way of approaching marketing, of building community it was going to fly or not. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was, it's really incredible and, and was really at the, the very beginning of the social movement, which has just changed everything. Yeah, no doubt. So did you end up getting to rejigger the partnership basis and, you know, equity participation <laughs> when you went into this and you were such a big part of it? Yeah. When we founded that, we, we founded it as an equal partnership. So, nice. um, cause it, you know, everything was from scratch and yeah, just, it made sense. Yeah, no doubt. Very cool. So your, what was your, uh, you know, like your founding vision with Quest besides wanting to do something meaningful? So we wanted to have a mission. I'm sure you know, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. Sure. And um, the, the irony is we actually read that after founding the company, but we had that sort of same sense and he really codified it all and gave us the words to talk about it. But we knew at the heart of this, there had to be something that we believed in. It had to be something that we'd be passionate about. And, you know, looking at the just absolute pandemic of ill health that was going around, we, we saw that that there was just a huge opportunity to positively impact humanity by ending metabolic disease, by making that the mission statement, by galvanizing everything around that, by only making foods that were metabolically real. So instead of just what will sell, which is what everybody else asked, right? What's, what's healthy-ish that will sell? And we wanted to really ask a fundamentally different question, which is, if I were measuring your blood, what's the ideal product? And that really became our, our driving force. And, you know, for me growing up in a morbidly obese family, as I was saying, it was like I, my uncle died of obesity related complications when I was like 12 years old. And so it was just like, it was so heartbreaking to see. And my mom and my sister, both morbidly obese at the time. And it just, I knew I was going to lose them before I needed to. So with this like new found fervor to not chase money, but to really think about people that I loved and cared about and put them at the center of what I was fighting for so that I would have the energy to show up and to fight and to push and to claw my way through boredom, 
which is one of the things uh, entrepreneurs don't often think about is some of the things you're going to have to do are just beyond tedious. And do you have something that you're fighting for that you believe in enough that you'll not only fight through the hard stuff, you'll fight through the boring stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. That's for me. I'm, I'm with you on that. Boring is boring is harder than hard. Yeah, <laughs> I'd much rather I actually agree. I'd much rather go on a 50 mile run than do something tedious and boring for a week. You know. So without getting too deep into nutritional science, when you say, you know, something has to be metabolically sound and, and you reference um, blood, I assume we're just talk, we're talking about insulin balance and, you know, how people are out of balance from a standpoint of insulin spiking because they're eating too much sugar and then, you know, leading to hyperinsulinitis or hypersensitivity to insulin, which leads to, you know, that little trail of deadly diseases. So it all comes down to sugar and things that process into sugar in your blood and spike or disrupt your hormonal balance. Is that what you mean by that? That, that was definitely where we started and glucose levels were our main focus. Later, it really became looking at other things as well, ketones being one of the most prevalent and really beginning to understand the role of fat, um, looking at glycation of tissue, things like that, and, and you know, really beginning to, to push. So the you, brought, you broaden the product suite into some other areas, because I remember we were talking about that a couple of years ago, about wanting to look into ketogenesis and how to stimulate that with, with the food that you make. Mm. Do you have a ketogenic product or, or bar? We did, to be honest. So first of all, I left the company back in October, so I haven't been there now for about nine months. Um, When I left, we were really going hard on keto. Since then, I I think keto is going to be a long burn, if I'm honest. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll be interested to see what they do in the future, like if they um, shelve it for a while, if they pursue it, if they've just slowed down. But they've backed off of uh, the product line in keto and I think that I think somebody is going to crack that market, and I really hope it's Quest, just because they're, the products that we were making are so good. I, in fact, I bought a huge stash, uh, so like everything that they um, were producing in what was called Quest Labs, uh, literally just cleaned the shelves. Because man, uh, as somebody who I go in and out of ketosis, yeah, I I, I will eat them until the last crumb is gone. <laughs> That's awesome. We all want to operate at peak performance and push past our barriers, find new boundaries, be the best that we can possibly be. Now, I've long been an advocate of natural training, believing strongly that Mother Nature has provided all the tools that we need. But recently, a few new innovations have evolved my mindset in this area. One of these is the new NeuroStim device for physical performance enhancement called Halo. Now, Halo stimulates that area of your brain responsible for movement, and the company has demonstrated a positive neuroplastic effect leading to performance gains in both individuals and teams. It's very simple to use and comfortable. I'm using it now to enhance my physical training as well as my somatic movement skills. Think Tai Chi. So I'm excited to now introduce this to the Unbeatable Mind tribe. And the team at Halo is offering $125 off the sport model. So check out their website at haloneuro.com. That's H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com. And use the code UNBEATABLEMIND125 at checkout. Trust me on this one. There are a few folks who already have the jump on you. So go to haloneuro.com today and use the promo code 
Unbeatable Mind 125. So you, I didn't realize that you left the company. I don't see that in my, my notes here, but I, uh, so that took me by surprise. So you did that obviously to focus on this new mission of yours with, with impact theory, but let's talk about that. What, you know, how did that decision come about? That must not have been easy for you. Uh, no, it wasn't easy, but it was, um, it was exciting, but you know, like anything, it starts from something not working out the way that you want. So I had built quest to be my forever company. I never intended to leave and I thought that the brand would be flexible enough to be a platform company that would follow all three of our desires, you know, as, as we expanded and grew as people, that the brand would be able to expand and grow um, and address the things that, that we all wanted to do. And that's why Impact Theory actually started as Inside Quest and was, um, you know, exactly the, the same show, essentially, that we're doing now. And as we were building that up and, and just really beginning to realize that for the audience, they thought of us as a protein bar company. And so for them, it didn't, it didn't really make a lot of sense why we were doing all this stuff around the mind because we hadn't been talking about it since the inception of the company. So it wasn't baked into the, the brand ethos, even though behind the scenes it was, even though as sure. founders, as a company culture, like we talked about it all the time, outwardly facing it didn't make a lot of sense. I was a little early on personal branding, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. people couldn't really see the, the long term. And right. I thought that it was going to be huge. I wanted to place a big bet on it. Um, and to do that, I was going to have to drag my partners along in an expensive and potentially long-term endeavor. And, you know, they didn't necessarily share that vision. So, you know, we were very fortunate of having had a level of success where, you know, we could all go and do whatever we wanted. So... Um, I spun this, we had built a, an entire studio inside of Quest and I spun that out into the standalone company that's now Impact Theory. Yeah. Well, I was there. Yes, so that's, you were. Uh, I remember that, taking the tour and then we did the little, the interview there with your live audience. What fun. That was really cool. So your studio is not that location anymore. Did you take it actually out, outside to a new location? Correct. Yeah. So now we film um, out of my house, uh, built the set here in my house. We're actually building a second set now in my house to create another show, uh, which I'm pretty excited about, but that, that won't come out for like another month and a half. Okay. And you still, you do it in front of a live audience? Still. We do, but the audience is much, much smaller now. So um, before, you know, we used to have say 30, 40 people in the audience. Now we have say 10. And give me your rationale for that. I mean, I, that's a lot of, a lot of extra logistics and work to get a live audience there. Do you, does it, does it help with energy or what do you get out of having a live audience for your show slash podcast? I know it's more than a podcast, but your show, I guess. It, yeah, it really does. I, I find create a totally different dynamic. There is something about the audience being there. And I'll be honest, like some people perform better with the audience and some people okay. perform worse. So <laughs> I could totally see that. I mean, I really enjoyed it, you know, but I, I could see how people would seize up a little bit. Yeah. So that that's always been a blessing and a curse. But I'll say it brings out the best in me for sure. And it really creates just a different energy in the room. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it, it's an energy that I really enjoy. There's, I don't know, you really get that sense of like trying to be of service to other people. You don't have to think uh, just about the person beyond the camera. You can, I mean, they're literally sitting right there. And uh, we've had some 
using that to really build some powerful long-term relationships with people who come in that want to check out the show. And the long-term vision is to build a traditional content studio. So think of Disney. So bringing people in from that world, from Hollywood to come in to see what we're up to, you know, has been really powerful for them to be able to watch the show firsthand. Yeah. Finally putting that USC film degree to work. Exactly. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, I see that there's a, a little statement here that, that reflects, I guess, probably your vision for impact theory. Leveraging the self-sustaining power of commerce to radically influence global culture. What does that mean? So the one thing that I find that today, like people really sincerely want to make an impact. They want to do something good. They want to have impact on culture. But the natural tendency of younger entrepreneurs is they end up with these models that are much more like a 501c3 nonprofit and Mm -hmm. not really understanding that at the end of the day, whatever it is that you're trying to do, whatever good you're trying to do in the world, you're either going to be finding a way to sell something of value or you're going to have to go beg money from people who have found a way to sell something of value. So either way, you're a salesperson. Either way, you have to convince people to give you money. But the only one to me that's self-sustaining where you can have your own way of doing things, you can have you know, your own North Star, nobody gets to tell you what to do other than the community of people that you sell to, And to me, that's just a much um, simpler relationship that allows me to have the kind of control and directionality that I want. So to do that, you've got to sell things that people would rather have than the money that they're trading for it that hopefully really does add value, um, can in and of itself begin to sway global culture. So... I, that, that sentence in particular is meant to signal to the world and to the company that at the end of the day, we sell things. So I consider us a merchandise company. And if you look at Disney, that's, you know, what Disney is. And Disney has provided just a ton of modeling for us in terms of, you know, look, I'm well aware that it's going to take a very long time. Disney's been around since the 1930s. It's going to take us a very long time to be able to compete at that level. Mm-hmm. But we're sincere in our approach to doing that. And one of the things that that model demands, and it's called the total merchandising strategy, is to have every piece of content that you put out build into the brand ethos. So if I say to you, hey, I'm going to go see a Warner Brothers movie or I'm going to go see a Sony movie, you don't know anything about those movies. But if I say I'm going to go see a Disney movie, you already know something about it. So they had the discipline to tell one kind of story over and over and over from a thousand different angles. And that's really our goal. But instead of capturing the magic of childhood, we want to capture empowerment. Nice. This whole conversation uh, has brought up a couple of things for me. One, I've long been kind of a critic of philanthropy driven by tax code. I think it's a it's a mess. You know what I mean? And, oh, yeah. And the, the, the why is all gooned up, right? Because you're doing it to save you know, money and not give it to the government. And so right there, it's a corrupted model. Although I'm sure it's done some good and it has a purpose. And I even have a 501c3 and it's the only way I could, you know, entice corporate donors, right? So they could get the tax benefit at any rate. So that's one thought. So I I applaud you on that. And I think a lot of social entrepreneurs these days are starting to take the same approach and saying, you know what, I, I don't need to follow the U.S. government's guidelines for a 501c3, I can do this as a for-profit. I can make more of an impact as a for-profit. And I just noted that um, Jeff Bezos said basically the same thing because people were criticizing him for not signing on to that pledge to give all his money away. 
you know, like Mark Zuckerberg did and, and uh, Bill Gates and the others. Instead, he said, you know what, I want to actually have an impact on the money. So he's soliciting entrepreneurial ideas on how people can actually directly impact mano a mano the world in a positive way. And he's going to fund them. I love that. I think that's brilliant. I love that too. Very cool. So let's um, talk, let's move from kind of the, the structural commercial realm. And now that we've brought you up to the present and talk about uh, developing mindset and, you know, the, the skills of the warrior entrepreneur, you know, the, the, the entrepreneur, that, you know, what, some of the things that you've talked about already remind me a lot of the principles that I teach around warrior developing, you know, development, the long-term vision, knowing clearly why you do things, having a very disciplined approach to your day, taking care of yourself so you can take care of others, service. Those are really distinct warrior disciplines, whether you know it or not, which I'm sure you do. But let's talk about some of your disciplines and how do you how do you take control of developing Tom so that you bring your best game to the table every day? Yeah. One, I just want to say that I really like the phrase warrior entrepreneur. That that resonates with me quite a bit. I've never heard that said quite that succinctly before, so thank you. Much like I learned meditation from you now, that's a, another nugget that I'll carry with me. Um, the, <laughs> no charge. Thank you. The uh, The way that I develop myself is I'm, I am very religious about how I structure my day and how I spend my time. So step one is I go to bed at 9 p.m. And for me, getting to bed early is the key to not needing to set an alarm and still being able to wake up early. So I haven't used an alarm in in 14 or 15 years. And um, so I wake up when I wake up. It's usually roughly call it six hours. I get out of bed. I give myself 10 minutes to get out of bed. I don't have an alarm, though, so there's no snooze. This is all identity that drives that behavior. Right. So you're getting up at 3 a.m.? Roughly, yeah. Yeah. So... Um, sometimes earlier. So there's times I've been in the gym at 1.30 in the morning and then there's times that I'm not in the gym until five, right? So when you don't sleep with an alarm, it has everything to do with how you're eating, what you've been doing, how hard you've been working out. But on average, I'll say I get about six hours sleep. Um, so head straight to the gym and usually work out for about an hour. And then I immediately go to meditation and, and I'm certainly not explaining the benefits of that for, for your sake, but I find that the juxtaposition of working out and being in the sympathetic nervous system and trying to rapidly get into the parasympathetic nervous system and that, that juxtaposition has been really effective for me in um, everyday life as somebody who has struggled with anxiety to be able to get calm very fast has served me very well. And after I meditate, I do what I call thinkitating. So one thing that I found frustrating about meditating was I get into that calm, creative state and my mind starts hitting on great ideas, but I'm trying to bring myself back to the breath, back to the breath. And so I found that if I knew that, okay, once I'm done, say 20 minutes is about how long I meditate. If I know once I'm done, I'm going to have the time to let my mind wander on these things. I'm not going to try to stop it. And I'm going to take notes. That like allowed my brain to go, okay, don't worry about thinking all those thoughts now. Like we'll, we'll do that in a minute. And so that's become very powerful. And I'll thinkitate for you know, say 20 to 40 minutes. So sometimes I'm, I'm doing that up to twice as long as my meditation, depending on if my mind is just really hitting on things that are clicking for me um, and I feel like I'm making progress on a given problem. And then after I do that, I read, which is super important to me. 
And I usually read for about an hour, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more. And then after I finish reading, uh, which is all nonfiction, after I finish that, then I keep a list of important things. So what are the most important things that I could be working on to move the business forward? And I just relentlessly go through those. And there's times I'm, you know, in that list by 6 a.m. And so I'll be, I don't take meetings before 10 a.m. So, you know, uh, depending on when you start the clock, whether you start it when I start working out or you start it when I um, go into my important things, either way, I hours and hours and hours before the first employee shows up, let alone the first meeting that I take. And uh, mm-hmm. I never check email, which I think is an important thing to leave out. Mm. Okay, I want to come back to that. Right, but, but you've sparked a few thoughts. Email is something I'm trying to get out of my life. I haven't done a great job at it, though. So meditation. Now, first thing I, that, that came to mind when you were talking about that is that you've hit upon something that's really important that most people have missed in that meditation, as it was traditionally taught, you know, through Zen, through yoga, through the Eastern traditions, came after the work. So we went from the gross to the subtle. So you do the physical movement, you move your body, you work out, you sweat, you know, you, you calm the nervous system, like you said, you bleed off uh, nervous energy, you open your hips and joints and your spine, you prepare your body to sit in silence through the work. And a lot of people just get up and think, okay, they said, you know, somebody somewhere said that I'm supposed to meditate first thing in the morning because the morning is the best time to meditate. True, after you move your body, right. you're going to get better results. So good for that. And that and that was that's the way we teach it in Unveil Mind and with our Kokori program. First, move the body, then move the breath. Then you begin to move the mind through concentration. And then you basically drop out, drop out of the mind or drop out of the, you know, the, the active mind and into you know, presence or, you know, a deep state of awareness. That's when you're truly in that meditative state. And that's when those insights come up that you started talking about. So that was, it makes perfect sense that after the breath awareness, which is really more of a concentration practice, that then when you're sitting in silence, that's because you're tapped into kind of your higher self, your insightful self, all that intuitive, all that information, all that stuff that wants to flow, you've stirred up and now it's flowing. And that's an awesome time to sit with a journal and to write and to draw pictures and to think. And I love that term, think take. I went off on a little tangent there. Sorry. I went into kind of like lecture mode for a second. No, man, I oh, love sorry it. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm, I'm, sometimes I do that on these podcasts. Anyways, this podcast episode is brought to you by Organifi. Now, we all know that green juice is good for us, but juicing is a pain. It costs a fortune and it's super time consuming. At least that's my story. Uh, I don't juice. So that's why I opt for Organifi green juice as an alternative because it's super easy, super tasty. It's an organic superfood green juice powder. Just add it to your water and stir it up. It dissolves almost immediately. Drink it and it will help sustain your energy throughout the day. It'll reduce stress over time. And best part is it really tastes good. So check it out. To get your micronutrients from a superfood green juice, use Organifi. I think stuff is great. Go to Organifi.com, and these guys are super generous. I know the founder, and they have offered a 20% discount to you on your order. So go to Organifi.com, use the code UNBEATABLE at checkout, and get 20% off your order. And uh, that link is also listed below in the show notes to this episode. Organifi.com. Hoo-yah. 
So that's cool. All right, so what an incredible morning. I, I call that thinkitating sitting for ideas, and then you spend an entire hour reading, nurturing your mind. And guess what? Your mind is so receptive after all that, isn't it? No question. So when you're reading, you're just soaking it up, and you're, and you're paying attention to the right things. And then you get to the important stuff. Wow, Tom, I think that's a powerful, powerful morning routine. I like that a lot. Thank you. Very cool. Now, what about this email? How did you help me out? How did you get that out of your life? Like, I, I'm struggling. I said, okay, at least I'll check it just three times a day. Now, you know, I find myself just gravitating to it. I like to keep a clean, I'm weird. I just like to keep a clean inbox. It's like my task list. And I know that it's not, but um, I, I know I've got all the good reasons to not use email. I even have an assistant. And I still use it because it seems like the, I've set it up as a primary mechanism for communication. Yeah. How did you get away from that? So one, I use a deep sense of shame around email. And, the, and, and I'm being serious. So when I think about what I'm trying to do with my business, and once you believe that you can do anything you set your mind to without limitation, how you spend your time becomes a spiritual consideration. So yes. it... I'm really trying to build something, content that I believe will help shape the belief system of anybody who encounters it and help them develop an empowering belief system and do more in this world and for themselves that then they would be able to do if they hadn't encountered that. So I really believe that we have a big mission, that it's an important mission, and that it can really have grand impact. So what's the likelihood that someone is writing me an email where they know better what I should be doing to build my business on that very specific trajectory than I do. And if they do, shame on me. So (laughs) when I'm going into my email, I'm saying, I don't know what I should be doing with my time. So I'm going to now be reactive to people writing in. So now full disclosure, I have an assistant. And so she checks like if there's some big opportunity because I know the outside world uses email. So she'll check it. But when I say that I see less than three emails a week, that's not an exaggeration. It, it's, no. I'll get one, two, maybe sometimes three, but that's really, really rare. So like this week, I haven't seen a single email. What about the, the tactics? Because I think this is really interesting to a lot of professionals who are listening to this. They're like, okay, that sounds great in theory, but tactically speaking, how does it work? Like, what does your, what have you empowered your assistant to do? How does she communicate to you the things that you need to know or don't need to know? So it, it goes like this. So first of all, if somebody's actually um, somebody that I would really like to hear from at some point for whatever reason, I'm... I'm going to tell them, don't ever email me. Send me a text. <laughs> and oh, and the it. thing is, like, you will, over time, you'll train people. So I've been email free for probably about three years. I've been aggressively anti email for five. So over time, like, if you look at my inbox, I don't get that many emails per day because all the people that I actually know, they know not to send me email. So the team, the internal team, Either we communicate face-to-face, which is always my preferred method of communication, but if you just need to zip me something quickly, we use Slack. So Slack, you know, just allows for easy dialogue. People know if you really need me to know something, either turn to me. I mean, we're sitting together. Turn to me and tell me what you want me to know. Shoot me a text. Or if it's not time-sensitive, then you can Slack it to me. So that's how I deal with it Um, in the team. Anybody outside knows to just shoot me a text. And then when it comes to scheduling things, because 
so much of my interactions are social. So they're happening in the DM on Instagram. They're happening, you know, in a tweet. And so I'll tell them, take a screenshot of this communication and send it to my assistant so she knows it's real. And so every now and then my assistant will get that and she'll know, okay, this is actually somebody that he wants to schedule. She is the entire keeper of my schedule. And so if, if I just send everything to her and don't have multiple people trying to schedule me, then, you know, you, you may get some busy days, but uh, you don't get conflicts. So help me understand, how is it different, you know, spending time in email versus, you know, spending an equal amount of time in, in Slack, on text or on Instagram? And well, so the, the real tricky one to answer is going to be on in the DM on uh, LinkedIn or uh, Instagram. Right. So here's that, that feels a lot like email. Yeah, I totally understand that. Once a week. So here's why I find that that's very different. So these are people in my community. They're the people that I believe that I serve. And so if they want something from me. This is where I'm going to be able to identify trends, things that need to be answered. And my answers are usually essentially, thank you so much, um, because it's often this piece of content changed my life, or thank you for this, or, right. you know, that kind of stuff. So it's going in, it's showing. So that, that's, that's different energy. That's you connecting with your tribe as opposed to just responding to some random. Correct. So it, it has nothing to do with the trajectory of my business. I save it for moments of, um, like, if I want to reward myself, uh, I'll say, you know, I can go spend time in there engaging with the community. Um, and, and that is, and that's very rewarding, even when it's like criticism, right? And just so that, like, that whole thing, feeling like, holy hell, like, I'm connected to all these people and, you know, we're really communicating and building something and they're helping amplify and echo this. Like, and I, I really think that that kind of high touch way is really the only way forward. Email, on the other hand, like you said, it's a very different energy. What people are sending there is just so, so different than mm -hmm. what they would do in a DM. It's, you know, they're always, they want, they're asking for attention. They're trying to sell me something, you know, so it's, it's just a, a very different thing. Beyond an event like you did last night, the 24-hour live Facebook, do you engage in, you know, uh, the public side of, of your Facebook accounts and LinkedIn, you know, where you're posting and responding to the public. Uh, yeah. Comments and things. Yeah, definitely. Do I do both. You do. Okay. Interesting. Cool. Well, I've learned something there, so I've got a little work to do, <laughs> but you've inspired right. me. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about trend setting and like what you think are the biggest issues that you want to hit on in the next 18 to 24 months through your, through your work? Like where are we at in the world and, and what are the most urgent and interesting things, you know, that Tom sees? Right so I think that we're just like we're facing a pandemic of the body. I think we're facing a pandemic of the mind. And the fascinating thing is how intertwined those two problems are. So right. really beginning to help people, address the issues that they're suffering with, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, or whether it's what I call being trapped in the matrix, which is just having limiting beliefs. You think you're not capable of something and therefore you actually aren't capable of it, which is the way the human mind works. So going in and really trying to assess how do you address that belief system? Now, the, the fascinating thing is, so I, I play a game called No BS, What Would It Take? So if you actually want to solve the pandemic of the body, if you want to end metabolic disease, what do you have to do? 
So most people tell you to tell people to eat less and exercise more, but we've been saying that for 50 years and it's just not getting us anywhere. We're going backwards. So, okay, we can tick that off. Tried it, didn't work. What else could we do? We could make food that people choose based on taste and it happens to be good for them. We know people will do that. That's leveraging behavior instead of trying to change it. So the same game, no BS, what would it take to end the poverty of poor mindset? What would that look like? And I actually think that it's, it's twofold. One, it is the addressing the belief system. And I think that the way that humans assimilate truly disruptive information is through narrative. So if you believe that humans assimilate disruptive information through narrative, and I mean, you can read Joseph Campbell, you can look at modern neuroscience, like all the stuff that's coming out really shows that the way that people take on new beliefs, the way that they bond in very large groups is with fiction. And you can think of any of the, you know, the major stories that we tell, whether that was, you know, 10,000 years ago, and we're telling stories about the moon god and the sun god, or, you know, whether it's a, a modern day fiction about what sports team you support, right? All of those things are galvanizing ideology. And so people rally around it. And I mean, I can't believe I didn't use this example, the, the military, right? Like you have an actual brotherhood with people you've never met because they're also a SEAL. So there's, there's something really core in that, um, but it's based around a series of beliefs. So how do you go in and create a tribe at scale? And I believe that the, the answer in a modern context is addressing people's belief systems through the cultural narratives that we tell and the, the major drivers of those narratives are traditional fiction. So it's movies, TV shows, books, comic books, video games. That's the behavior that people are already using to digest ideology, but it's, it's happening in the form of pure entertainment. So most of them aren't extracting as much powerful ideology as they could. And so what I think there's an opportunity to do by marrying social commentary, so the, the content that we do socially. So for instance, the, you know, during the 24 hour live, one of the things that we did is walk people through what can you learn about leadership from Game of Thrones is but one example. And that's content where they're not making an effort to put that at the forefront. So you can imagine if you take the Disney approach where every piece of content has to feed into the brand ethos so that the brand name itself means something. If we can do that with empowerment mm -hmm. and make the brand name of Impact Theory, you know that like if Disney is the most magical place on earth, if we were, we're not, but if we were to do an you know, impact land, that it would be the most empowering place on earth. And so what does that content look like that feeds into that belief system, that, that feeling, that sensibility to the point where people could actually articulate it? Mm -hmm. Interesting. So creating a media company that can you know, essentially craft a positive story based upon a positive vision of the future of empowerment that that then can influence culture Correct. through media. Because most, as both of us are well aware, media doesn't right now give a shit about a positive outlook on future. Correct. <laughs> Traditional media is negative because that's what's been selling. I like it. Fantastic. Well, let us know how we can help, Tom. And we're all here for you. I'm going to I have one more thing for you, which is pretty interesting. This morning, I did a solo cast. Every once in a while, I just kind of like to riff on stuff. And I was reading... Marcus Aurelius and some of his meditations. And so this is a little thought project. So he, one of the, at one point he says, whether a man lives a hundred years or 3000 years, 
when he dies, he loses just one thing. Can you guess what that is? The first thing that came to mind is his life. Right, but beyond the life. Let's, what's the, the one common thing between a man who's been alive for 3,000 3, years or 30,000 and just 100 years or even time? one? Time? Yeah. No, but time in the sense that the only thing we have is his point is the present mm. moment. The only thing we have is the present moment. Whether you're 100 or 3,000, the only thing you lose when you pass on is the ability to experience the present moment in this human form. Isn't that wild? That is. I, I'm sure you... From, from Mar Marcus Aurelius, you know, 180 AD. It's pretty crazy how ancient that realization is. Um, have you read The Power of yeah. Now by Eckhart Tolle? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah, that really hit me. Just that, yeah, you're right. This is it. Like, there is nothing else. Yeah, this is it. The, you know, everything that we just talked about about your past, you know... It, it's an impression. It's a memory. It's a, it's a mental thought that happens in the present when you reflect mm -hmm. upon it. And every vision or imagination you have about the future, about impact theory, is a thought that's occurring now in your mind space in the present moment. Ultimately, that's all we have is this moment right now and then this. That, now, how cool uh, is that? Uh, that's a trip, yeah. especially when you compare... 100 years to 3,000 years and really think that at the end of the day, that's, that really is exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. How cool is that? There's a thought for uh, our listeners. And, and Tom, I, you know, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. And I know you're super busy. And I just love what you're up to. And we're totally in sync with you. And, uh, you know, let me know how I can help out. Or if you need anything from me or from us, let us know. Because uh, we're traveling the same journey on different paths. And we're going to keep on intersecting and... It's going to be a lot of fun that, in the present moment. Definitely. Right? So people can find Impact Theory uh, by Googling it. Um, what, do you have a website? Yep, you can go to impacttheory.com. But if you want to engage with me, the best way is at Tom Bilyeu across all socials, including YouTube. And YouTube is where I put out all my content. And it's at forward slash Tom Bilyeu. Tom Bilyeu. And, and Bilyeu is spelled B-I-L. Y-O-U, like Y-E-U. I wish it were the other way. It'd be so much easier. Oh, man. Sorry. That, okay, so I've got it in two different places. It's spelled wrong. So B-I-L-Y-E-U. Yep. That is the one. No, Sorry about no that. Worries. Okay, Tom. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Thank you so Thanks much for your time. Man, yeah, I hope to see you again in person soon. That would be fantastic. Gosh, you know, just let me know. Thank you, man. All right. Hoo-yah. All right, folks, that's it. You heard Tom Bilyeu, Impact Theory. Check it out. What a neat guy. Really, really cool. So until next time, stay focused. Remain present because that's all you got, whether you're 100 or 50 or 3,000 years old. And uh, keep on developing that unbeatable mind. We'll see you around. Hoo-yah. Divine out. Boys, make sure you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleets, the bright swinging frogmen of the UTT. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully, it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
and all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.